Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. getting out of it. 
And so what that changes everything. So with Brittany was sharing this, she said, you know, um, she just made a comment, and I'm not going to say it well, but what she said was, um, it's amazing how that changes things because we were taught to put so much hope in what we find in the book of Revelation, the things in the end, we're, you know, we're going to get raptured out here. This, and I'm not saying there's not going to happen. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying there's not a heaven. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't love us. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be a Christian. Just I'm not trying to convert anybody today. Okay, that's not the point. We're not a, abandoning faith. But the, the point is, where is our hope? Is the reason that we serve the Lord because after we die, we go to heaven? Or is the reason we serve the Lord because we've been invited into life abundantly? You know, if you found out today that heaven wasn't real, would you care? Or is the relationship worth it? Is what is, is you know, Jesus never, ever described Come follow me because after you die, you go to heaven. Jesus also uh, always said, come follow me because I offer you life and life more abundantly. Right. And so what, what Brittany said, she uh, made a comment, and it wasn't a negative comment at all, but it really hit me um, and made a comment about hope. And so this morning, Eli, I think the, the um, slide's up there if you would. Um, but this morning, we're going to look at the gospel of hope. And, and, and hope is such a big topic. We can't tackle this from every single word. This is not going to be an exegetical study of, of the word in the Greek or the Hebrew necessarily. This is not going to be um, necessary. And, and uh, in case anybody's wondering why the picture isn't as clear as it normally is, I made the slide for this Sunday service. Um, and so it's not as clear as Brittany's picture, but that's kind of where I got it from. Um, and so um, we're going to look at this morning. And if you'll notice, what hope is not a question. It's an exclamation. What hope do you have? It's incredible what this hope is. So on the beginning of your sheet, there's a, um, a, a quote from one of my favorite writers, Hero Dostoevsky, um, who wrote Brothers Carey and, and many other incredible novels. Um, to live without hope is to cease to live. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. Let's look at this section of verses. There is a divine mystery, a secret surprise that has been concealed from the world for generations. But now it's being revealed, unfolded, and manifested for every holy believer to experience. Now it's being revealed and unfolded. When? For every believer to experience. Living within you is the Christ who floods you with expectation, which is the word hope there, of glory. In fact, if you look at this in the New King James, the King James or the NIV, it probably will say, what is the hope, what is the hope of glory? You've heard the verse before, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You've heard it phrased that way. It's the same thing. The mystery of Christ embedded within us becomes heavenly a heavenly treasure chest of hope filled with the riches of glory for his people. And God wants everyone to know it. We live in what Paul defines or calls a divine mystery. This divine mystery has been existent in the world and seems 
the world system since the beginning, but it couldn't understand it is what Paul says. You see, the basis of this mysterious divine change is a systematic unveiling. It is systematic in the way that it's revealed and so forth. And if we are not careful, we actually fight against this unveiling. We find comfort and peace in the knowing and discomfort and anxiety in the mystery. Let me say that again. Very, very important. We as human beings tend to find comfort and peace in knowing and anxiety and discomfort in mystery. Paul tells us what it means to embrace comfort is to embrace the mystery. See, what we don't realize is around 350 A.D., this really interesting guy named Constantine got saved um, and decided that he wanted to get everybody else saved by killing them. You know, they say, then you get saved. And giving them the option that we'll get you safer some men killed you. That um, And, and um, what also began to happen was they began to systematically within religious culture, as soon as religion got co-opted by government, which is, you do realize that's when they started calling it Roman Catholicism. Why? Because Rome was running the show. The church was just the church until it became Roman Catholicism. Why? Because empire got in the business of religion. So that's what Jesus came to overturn. Jesus came to, to show the system of religion and the system of the world are not the same thing as the Father. The same thing as walking with God. So as soon as Constantine gets involved, this really interesting thing happens, and there's a shift and a divide that takes place where up until that point there was an equal embrace of knowing and unknowing. There was an equal balance between the mystery and the understanding. And very quickly they begin to eschew mystery for what they understood. And here's what immediately happens as soon as you embrace this concept. As soon as you begin to shug off and cast off the idea of any unknowing or mystery or, or lack of understanding, you begin to gather together with like ones who understand like you understand and make enemies of everybody who doesn't understand like you understand because what they understand to you is a mystery and now they have to be your enemy to solidify my rightness. So that's why we have this really great thing in Western Christian civilization called denominationalism. We're divided by what you know. And as soon as we know something that the group that we're part of doesn't know, we have to leave that group and find another group that knows like we know. That's how it works. And, and this idea of finding comfort and peace in knowing alone creates echo chambers whereby we only want to know more. And we don't continue to elaborate based on what we know. We just continue to know the same thing again and again and again. And then it becomes a renovation of what we already knew in the first place. Rather than the embrace of what we don't know. But Jesus actually came and was defined as a mystery. Because mystery is not lack of knowing. Mystery, as defined by Richard Rohr, is actually infinite knowing. The ability to continue to know 
Because done well, this journey that we're on, every time you learn something about him, it should pose any question of what you don't know. If it doesn't, if everything you find of him doesn't pose another question about something you don't understand about him, you probably didn't just learn something new. You just learned something you already knew. Right? Because we do that. And what happens then is our culture begins to, this is a really, this is a really um, devastating thing that we see very prevalent today, is culturally then speaking, what people, once they've run out, once we as a people, and I say we, have run out of knowing, then we begin to try to re-know. And re-knowing is looking back. This is why it's so absolutely devastating to me when you hear people try to define the future that they have to hope for by the past that they've already went from. We need to just make it like the 50s again, where everything was great. It wasn't great for everyone. And the challenge is why that is so dangerous is as soon as you decide that, that it, your mystery is defined by what you already know but you want to know again, you actually begin to push against the pull of all of creation which is always pulling you forward into something that is mysterious and unknown. God is pulling you forward into um, um, being restored and being healed and being made one with him. And that's never something that's behind you. So unknowing is the idea of, of this wonderful walk. That's why Paul said peace that passes understanding. Why? Because true peace doesn't exist in what you know. True peace exists on the other side of what you admit that you don't know and you become comfortable with. Peace that passes understanding. That's why most people don't have peace. Because true peace exists on the other side of not getting it and being okay. Peace exists when you go past the threshold of I don't know and that's okay. But most people then don't actually walk in peace because their only peace exists in the comfort of what they know. And so what we've been invited to is this balance. Brian McLaren actually says, we abandon the true teaching of Jesus because we weren't seriously interested in changing the world. We instead got involved in an evacuation plan for the next. Because unknowing and knowing is what changes the world. It's the thing that pushes, that's where we actually get in line or aligned with his plan that's always pulling us forward. And so as soon as you try to go back, you're literally fighting against the gravity of God. It's unnatural in the most in, in the most definitive way. So what he does is he says, in this way, we've traded the process of transformation found in the tension of knowing and unknowing. And I say that again. True peace exists in the tension found between knowing and mystery. There is a tension. There really is a tension. But we don't like that. We like our faith to be defined. I know who's going to heaven. I know who's going to hell. Just ask me, I'll tell you. And I'm humble about it too. Those kinds of things become very comfortable for us. I know who's in and I know who's out. And amazing to me, I've never asked somebody who they think is going to heaven or hell 
and the group that they think is going to hell be their group. It's amazing. You would think that, like, there's never been an instance where I've been like, I've asked a Methodist, hey, who do you think is going to hell? And they'd be like, oh, the Methodists, we're going to burn. Like, that never happens. It amazingly is always their group that's going to hell. Their group that gets it right. We do that. So what we have to find is this idea of everything then outside of what we know becomes dangerous, and we have to avoid it. This dualistic way of thinking caused us to cling to what we know and agree upon. In our absolute and utter arrogance, we thought what connected us was our shared understanding. This is ludicrous and egocentric at the core. Paul actually defines what connects everything. All things in heaven and earth. Christ. What connects us together is not our shared understanding. What connects us together is Christ. And I don't mean Jesus. I mean Christ. I mean what it means that the Jesus that was defined in, in the beginning of John as having been and always will be. He was the word. He was God. He was with God. That Christ is what keeps everything together. It's the thing that, that aligns the trees and the streams and the people and the Christians and the Muslims and the atheists. Because God isn't confused or frustrated by atheism nearly as much as we are. I heard a pastor say one time, very, in my opinion, brilliantly, he said, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we're all just reverent agnostics. What that means is reverent agnosticism would just essentially mean we're all just people who really don't get it but are trying to get it. That's where the man went to Jesus and said, I don't believe, but I want to believe. Help my belief. There's a humility that's found there that is so, so crucial to who we are. Colossians 3.11. There is, this isn't on your sheet, there is only Christ he is everything and in everything. There is nothing outside of him. You know what that means? The person who we think is getting ready to split hell wide open is in Christ. I mean, it's just true. There is nothing outside of him. By him, everything exists. All things are in Christ. So that's why we can be in a position where, of course, we've got to evangelize and amen, share the love of Christ. But that's where we don't have to worry. That's why we don't have to feel like, you know what, i got to get as many people saved as I can today because, you know, what happens if the rapture happens? I mean, I remember being a kid and coming to the altar every Sunday morning and praying to God the rapture happened that afternoon because that was the only way I was confident I was going. Like, between Sunday church and Monday morning, I could, you know, really do something devious. Like, I don't know, listen to 50s music. Or strippers, you know, whatever it was, like it was going to be bad. And so you would have these fear-based systems that just drive us to this thing. And the reality of it is we don't have to worry because we're in Christ. All things are in him and by him all things are held together. He's already much more aware of them than we are. Augustine said this, all of creation in the end will only be one Christ loving himself. That's nice. When I read that, I just kept, I felt like I 
because it's like daisies and bees or something, you know, just totally unlivable, you know. But that's that's the idea. All this thing saying in the end, it will all be Christ. Because once again, he's the head and we're the body of what? Christ. So in the end, it's just going to be him. There's going to be us in him as we are now in him. So you find this throughout all of the early church. You find this being Corinthians actually indicates that when it's all done, God will be complete in all. So the process is now as weird as this is to think God is perfect. He created a benevolent universe. He created something good. He called it good repeatedly. And so within that, he's now in the process of just giving us back to good, getting all of creation back to good. That's the timeline of what he's doing. And within that, in the end, all will be back to good. That's what he does. That's why 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, God will be in all. He will make complete. The problem actually runs much deeper than we realize, though, because the next logical conclusion of this separation and the fear mystery is that hope only becomes hope for a few. I believe this is deeply problematic for the entire human being, the entire human being, meaning our body, soul, and spirit. We see this today with severe mental illness issues, not just in this country, but throughout the world. Because if the gospel doesn't give hope for all of history and all of creation, it's very hard for it to give hope to individuals. As soon as the gospel stops being hope for all, it stops being hope. And I was reading this, uh, I missed it a couple weeks ago. I was reading this really interesting study. This guy that had dedicated his life, he was a, a psychologist and a therapist, dedicated his life to that. And he said, you know what I've realized in the end that most mental illness is sparked and gauged, turned on by loneliness. Now, I'm not debating, uh, first of all, I'm not debating any of that in that quote. I don't have initials after me. But the, the reality is that um, there is something to the fact that we were a relational being. God created us to exist in relationship. And if you find the first not good in Scripture is lack of relationship. And he saw that man was alone and that it was not good. Why? Because we're relational beings. And so as soon as we then try to make it hope for some and not hope for all, as soon as our hope is what happens in the afterlife, something that's distant, it becomes something that we don't get to live now. And so it's no wonder that we can't be purveyors of hope for people that need hope now because our hope isn't now anyway. Our hope is after we die. Our hope is in heaven or in the rapture or in whatever happens uh, and however you think you get there. And so within that idea, it does become an, in, an inaccessible hope. And that's why I think we do have a hopelessness problem. And as soon as we have a hopelessness problem, we have a mental health problem. It's just the reality. We have broken people. And the problem is um, we are to be those that carry hope. But if our only message or gospel of hope to people who are hopeless and who are broken is you can also have hope too, that is where you go after you die. But this life just kind of sucks. 
is that a real message of hope? Or, yeah, God loves you, but you have to become part of our club first. Like, God loves you. After you stop being negative. God loves you after you stop being negative. God is good if you pray this repair, uh, this, this prayer and repeat after me the Romans road. Then you'll be good. It is not the way it works. That is a dangerous gospel. Because this hope is there and never here. And if hope is never here, then we are much more likely to be threatened by other influences. Do you get what I'm saying? If our hope only is there and never here, we're much more likely to be threatened by other influences because we're doing our best to try to hold on to this list that qualifies me for the hope that is there. So then anything else that comes in that threatens that list, I want to fight against or run away from, fight or flight, you're going to pick one of the two, I've done both. Um, You want to pick one of those because I'm trying to do everything I can to adhere to this list that gets me to that hope. Hope is now. There is this hope. It is found in Christ, and we get to live it now. We get to offer it now. One of the things that I think is most fascinating is if you study the life of Jesus and believe that you can be everything that he was, you have an obligation to be a hero now. But we cannot be heroes now until we get here. At least until we engage in the process of healing. Maybe that's a a, a better way to say it because I don't want to say it as if you've got to give everything right. But until we engage in hope, we cannot be purveyors of hope. And one of my favorite quotes is that the people or the person with the most hope will always be the person with the most influence. The person with the most hope is always going to carry the most influence. Why? Because people are drawn to that. But if our hope is only in the distant whatever, in the sky with God then is that really hope? Many of these influences that we fight against are other belief systems or the cultural evolution of learning. You see, this is why today, if you're a fundamentalist Christian, you're taught to be threatened by science. Why? Because that's mystery. That doesn't fit my list of what it requires for me to qualify for the hope that's in heaven. So any other truth that doesn't come through the vein or through the method of my list is a threat to my knowing. So I would rather than hear some really cool thing about the fact that the the sun provides 400 million tons of energy for the earth a day to keep us alive. And do you realize that the sun is 94 million miles away from the earth? If it was 93 million miles away from the earth, we would burn to death. If it was 95 million miles away from the earth, we would freeze to death. The perfection of creation is incredible. But as soon as you say something like that, people get ticked off and go, nope, I'm going to create and use the internet. Genesis didn't tell me that. I want to go see Noah's Ark tonight. It freaks people out. Guess what? I had somebody tell me the other day. They're like, well, you know what? I just believe in God's truth. What other truth is there? It's all his truth. It's all his truth. I don't care how we get it. It's all his truth. But we're taught to be then boxed into this thing. And that's why I'm amazed when Christians get really ticked off with science. It just kind of messes with me. I'm like, why are we upset by this? 
like God's the one that put it in place. It's an amazing thing. And if we're people that believe in miracles, it should be the easiest way to convince people of a miracle-working God. Like, I don't care if you've ever seen somebody get out of a hospital bed after you've prayed for them. I know that every time a woman gets pregnant, her body changes in 50 to 60 miraculous ways in order to accommodate that pregnancy. That's a miracle. I mean, and I'm not saying we don't, shouldn't believe for the other, but to me, as soon as you push that off and say, well, I'm not doing that because it comes out of a textbook and not the book of Genesis, it's all truth. It's all his. If we believe we have one creator, I don't care how you get it. But we're taught that, and we're taught that the, then you have to, you're, you're not allowed to follow Jesus and believe in climate change. It messes with people. I don't understand that. I don't really care if you believe in climate change or not. I think it's dangerous if you don't. But I do think that it, it should certainly not be because it doesn't follow our Christian understanding. I just don't think that makes sense to me. And that's what happens. We become threatened by these other outside things rather than allowing them to actually embolden and galvanize the story of the miraculous God that we get to know. It should serve to bolster the message of hope, not to threaten it. Because as soon as knowing is, if what we know becomes our only hope, then it's hinged on all of these things other than God and what he can do. If I can make this statement, I sincerely believe that God is a mystery to be explored and enjoyed more than captured and defined. This is why we're invited to take and seek, not to learn and understand. Taste and see that I'm the Lord. Why? Because we want you to experience, not to read about. Of who he is is the taste and see that we get. Because reading and learning about the fact that, that it's insufficient for the way you were created, it will always feel empty and cause you to continue to look for another way to read and learn. And so within this idea, we've got to understand that that is hope. Even the idea of mystery. In fact, it's that Greek word mysterion, which, which is really interesting because it does mean to pull, excuse me, to pull back layers. I said this earlier, but mystery isn't something that is not knowable. It's something that is infinitely knowable. The mystery of God is not something you can't know. It's something that you do get to know. There is no point in which you can say, I got it. That's what scares us. That's what scares us about mystery is that we fear that there's no point that we'll be able to attain it. But if the point is to experience and not to define, then we shouldn't be threatened. This is why every time we come with eyes open, we experience something that answers a question and poses new questions. The separation of knowing and mystery has drastically affected the way we view hope. It became something placed in the future, something to come, to believe for, to expect, but not a reality for now. This is not the Christian concept of hope at all. Yes, of course, we'll always be hopeful about the future, and we should be. But if we're not careful, tomorrow never comes. 
the hope of my tomorrow never gets to be the hope of my today. Because it's always hope for tomorrow. There's some people that, you know, you've heard people, whatever it is, that they're going to quit drinking. You know, they're going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit smoking, man. I'm finished with pot. Well, you find other pot. Or whatever it is. I don't care. You know, I'm going to I'm gonna cut my hair when I get, well, I can't. I'm going to go bald. <laughs> All right, so enough about that illustration. I believe this also has had an incredible impact on mental illness in our world. The gospel was intended to give hope to all, but it was full of pressures and problems. And this is where we're going to get into it. Totally without hope, one cannot live. To live without hope is to cease to live at all. Hell is hopelessness. This is Theodore Roosevelt's idea. Hell is hopelessness. It's by no accident that above the entrance to Dante's picture of hell is the inscribed, leave behind all hope, those that think they have. It's by no accident. So it should be our job to be ministers of hope. Because as soon as we leave people hopeless, we've left them with hope. Maybe not the eternal hell, but the right now hell. And if you've ever met somebody who's hopeless, that is hell. See, the gospel is good news. And to be honest, we have made it good news for some. Good news for those who people that belie- uh, for people that believe like me, look like me, think like me, which frankly is bad news for everybody else. If the gospel is not good news for all, it's just not good news. Hope becomes the transformed life of resurrection, not simply the future resurrection, but a lifetime of resurrection. That's what we get to live in. Resurrection isn't what happens after you die or Jesus comes back, whichever happens first. How many times have you heard that? I get to live eternally in heaven, whichever happens first, if I die or he splits the eastern sky. It's now. That's why he didn't tell you to pray, let me be in your kingdom. He said, pray, let that kingdom be here. Because that's the idea. The person that lives this way will always live in a now reality of hope and will be empowered to heal a hopeless society. But if our entire hope is an afterlife heaven reward, then this serves very little purpose. It suddenly becomes a little more reasonable to think that a group of crusaders and North American conquerors who would give the indigenous people the option to accept Christ before they killed them. Why? Well, we gave them hope, which is after we kill you, you'll get to go to heaven if you kill this killer. That's the danger that exists when our only the only hope we have is believe like me and then get that reward. It's not that. I want to be so hopeful that when people are around me, they get more hopeful just because of the overflow that I am in. That, that it enlivens them, that I don't have to lay hands on them for them to be healed, but that I operate in healing to such a degree that I'm so being healed that, that my cup is running over. And that miraculously, people who were challenged and were anxious and were discouraged and were whatever, broken in whatever way that we all are, that they just feel a little bit of that and go, oh, wow, that's what this feels like. That's the Christian scene. This might be shocking to you that an afterlife reward is a very unbiblical theology. An afterlife reward is unbiblical. 
Its roots are in paganism and the largest religion that think like us about the reward for what you do here you receiving after you die is another group called radical Islam. You know the guys that believe that if they blow themselves up that they'll get all kinds of great things in heaven, 70 beds and all that kind of stuff? If we're really honest with ourselves, some of our version is we're not going to have it. Thank God we're not blowing ourselves up. But you see how that can go that way. And it's not scriptural. It's not godly. It's not what the scripture indicates that we're supposed to live in. And it's absolutely not what Christ came to show us. He didn't come to demonstrate to us that if you do all the right things here, you'll get it all there. He came to show you that I am give, I'm giving you the invitation to enter into an, a cycle that's already happening whereby he's restoring and healing all of creation and you get to be a part of it. Because the, the healing and restoration of creation is happening whether or not you ever step into it. You just get to step into it. He's pulling it all that way anyway. We have to begin with the framework that this is a benevolent universe of creation created by a benevolent God. If not, things get really messed up really quickly. God becomes more like Santa Claus making a list and checking it twice. Just want to find out who's naughty or nice. I lived that God for years. And as soon as I did something that was on the naughty list, everything was in question. Now my entire salvation is in flux. That's not hope. This forces us all to tell people to be hopeful while damning everything inside is going to hell. So we go to an individual like, if you get saved, you can have hope. But everything around us, how many times have you seen on on? Guys, I bless the sick in the name of Jesus. Because I can do that. Because they've ever thought that working on my own was going to help those folks. So when, when you see, how often do you see Christians on Facebook and most of, their, most of their posts about the things going on in the world, are they 90% there's good things happening and what God wants to do? Or is it 90% it's going to hell in a handbasket? I don't know how Jesus can hold on from coming and getting in the church any longer. The world's getting so dark, I just can't imagine it getting any worse. Is that a message of hope? It, it amazes me how that passes off as Christianity. It amazes me that that passes off as the gospel of Christ. Because the reality is, if your vision, Jesus said it this way, if your eye is full of darkness, your view and entire being will be darkness. But if your eye is full of light, your perspective and being will be full of light. If our perspective of the world is that it's dark, we've got an eye problem, not a world problem. If our perspective of the world is dark, I've got a me issue, not a world issue. And so what we have to do is we have to change that lens in some way. So we then get to tell people that rather than the idea you can come be part of this, otherwise, you know, you're going to go to hell like everything else. We get to tell people all of creation's being restored and brought back to an eternally loving God who's never left us nor forsaken us. First John chapter 1, verse 1. 
look with wonder at the depth of the Father's marvelous love that he has lavished on us. He called us and made us his very own beloved children. The reason that the world doesn't recognize who we are is they didn't recognize him. Beloved, we are God's children right now. And here's the kicker. When you look at this in the original language, and when you look at the context, he actually is making that statement not to Christians in the church, but to everyone. So when you actually do a little bit of study, I love that the Passion Bible points this out. Um, Dr. Simmons really does a good job with this. He says, when John says this, he he stops and addresses the entire world, and he says, all of you, beloved children. So first, he re-identifies the entire world and all creation as being beloved. You realize that when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, The reason that God spoke out of heaven, this is my beloved son, is because he wanted to do it before Jesus did anything for him. That was before Jesus' ministry. Jesus hadn't healed anybody. Jesus hadn't preached. Jesus had just baptized. So God wanted to let us know, this is my beloved son. Not because of what he's getting ready to do, but just because we're his children. He reframes the entire thing and starts with beloved. Not after we've qualified by what we've done. It'd be very easy at the cross for God to have said, this is my beloved son. He's done all this good work and he's dying for your sins. But he starts with beloved. That's what John is doing. John tells everybody, you all are beloved, and you are all God's children. However, it's not yet apparent what we will become, but we don't because we don't know that when it's finally made visible, we'll be like him. For when we see him as he truly is, you reframe this or just reword it just a little bit. Essentially what that says is, don't you recognize that in the end you're going to be like him because all it requires is for you to see how good he is and you can't help but be like him. If you see how good he is, you can't help but be like him. But our lack of being like that is because of our lack of seeing how good he is. The gospel of hope is the invitation for us to step into this. So look at this last part. But we do know that when it is finally made visible, we will be just like him, for we will see him as he truly is. And all who focus their hope on him will always be purifying themselves just as Jesus is pure. So if you focus your hope on him, you're not going to have to worry about trying to get right enough to get it because if you focus your hope on him, he'll just do it all. verse, Proverbs chapter 13. I actually want to make a, I just had this thought, I want to make a couple comments about that first part. The framework of this passage, first thing, when you look at John 1, well, look at verse 1, I guess, actually. Notice that it starts with us. I think this is a whole other thing, and I would rabbit trail if I, if I went into it. But the, one of the primary problems with Western evangelical Christianity is that it is a me salvation, not an us salvation. We, I want to 
say this the right way because I do believe that God would, you know, we, we believe in him leaving the 99 and going after the one. We understand that. But you do understand that, that it was like a thousand years into Christianity before they ever came up with the term making Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. How many times have you heard that? And that's what we ask people, right? Have you ever made Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? The reason they had to do that is because people were believing that if I just am around, because my parents believe, then I'm good to go. So they, they put this thing in place to qualify that it has to be a decision you make. And I'm not in any way discrediting that. But the challenge is, as soon as it becomes individual, we, we actually then become focused on us. It's egocentric at the core, rather than understanding that it's an us restoration. We're stepping into a thing that's happening and always been happening. We're stepping into a restoration and a healing that has always been happening. So it's not about you. It's about everything. And you get to be part of everything. So that's why John says here, he's lavished it on us. Because it is an us thing. And as soon as you make it a you thing or a me thing, then the only us is people that look like you. So for it to be us, it has to be a whole bunch of little me's. Now you see why we have issues in our country. And it becomes so absolutely egocentric. I mean, this idea of individualism is what led the way for us to, as a country to embrace somebody who would stand there and say, I am the only one who can fix this. And we cheer. That's terrifying. That egocentric thing is tattooed at the center of the way we do God and the way we do faith. And it's never been about me. It's always been about us. Because I can go only go as far as you go. It was the dream of these things. In fact, I, some of the early church fathers, when I was studying for the penalty, some of the early church fathers actually believed that I only know hope the way I'm supposed to know it when I exchange it with another. That's pretty wild. I only see hope through the clear lens that he intends when I exchange hope with another. That's pretty wild. And I kind of get it. It's like love, right? If you, if you never really exchange in love, do you ever really know love? People that only receive love and never give it, do they ever really understand how love works? Can it be possible? Can it be just, just a one-way street? I don't believe that it can. I think it has to be a giving and taking and a giving and taking. And so within that idea, that's how hope is designed to work. So it starts with us. The basic message for the kingdom is not that you can get saved from all of your awfulness and avoid hell, but that the whole thing is being healed and you get to be a part of that. That's the gospel of hope. That is the invitation for us to step into participation in this incredible, restoring, healing, transformative work that's already happening around us. That's a gospel of hope where we get to tell people, not, hey, you're going to burn. Do you want to be like me? We get to tell people, hey, there's this incredible thing that's happening where everything is being healed. You want to be part of that? Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. 
We don't have time to go into all of the elements of worship today. My favorite passages, and I'm not, you haven't seen all that open mountain with me this week, but, but um, hope deferred, and, and, and essentially that just means delayed. Um, in fact, I think we even have an expression for that word there, just hope delayed, that actually conjures a sickness. believe that I don't remember a time uh, in, in my academic life where I saw so many angels in mass where I saw so many angels um, a lot of them looked like me um, to be honest um, but I, I think that one of the things that that I'm curious about is really understanding so angry, and I think if I'm honest, that one of the reasons that people have become so angry is that people don't know how to process what they're going to find, and they don't know how to process pain. So I, I, I one time uh, uh, read an article, and, and the writer said, the reason that people become, that vitriol and anger produces success is not is that people will never talk how to be stuck. So as soon as, you, as soon as you don't understand how to process pain or process lack of understanding or what could feel like an unknown, the only, uh, and, and let's, I mean, it goes really deep, guys, because mo- I said that most of them look like me. Um, it, it starts with men. It's probably just me. Most of the angriest people that I've seen are men. And I think one of the reasons for that really is it starts from a young age because we're taught as boys, boys don't do what? You cry. We're taught from a very, very, very young age to shut off those feelings. What boys can do is they can just cry. So you walk all that out all the way out. And it comes into some really, really nasty things. And I think that I think that there's a deep thing where there is a hopelessness that happens when you tell people that they can't feel. And I think that there's a healthy thing that God has called to do where you can tell people, okay, um, how do you learn to, to embrace difficulty and pain, maybe call it suffering, whatever you want to call it, and allow that to be just as strong of a teacher as overcoming indifference? How do you allow unknowing to be just as much of a comfort as knowing, mystery as understanding? And that kind of thing is really, I think, what we're seeing lived out around us. Because as soon as you stop understanding how to really process hopeless words, so not knowing how to hope, not knowing how to do well, not knowing where to put your hope and feeling like that anytime there's others that have hope around me, now a piece of my hope pie has gotten smaller. I had hope till that guy got it. Now he's taken it. My hope pie just got smaller. I get a smaller piece now. When in reality, that's what makes our hearts sick. But when desire comes, when we understand his passion for us, his love for us, that's the joy of the gospel. 
is not designed for a week, to be something that is accessed, lived in, exchanged, and drawn from in this life. It is, it is not something that was designed to just be out there. It is designed to be something that's accessed, lived in, drawn from. I, I really believe that one of the most important things we can learn to do right now is do right now. How do we do right now that it's not tomorrow and it's not next year and it's not even coming week. It is right now. And I think if you if we can learn to be right now, we'll become more hopeful automatically. I don't need something that was to be again for me to have hope because what was will never be again because all of the universe, all of creation is pulling forward. What was will never be period. And as soon as you try to force it to be, you're fighting against the very gravitational pull of the restorative power of God. And it will make you hopeless. But if the light of our eyes is right now, everything we see will be different. The message of the good news is just that, good news for all. The good news that we never will forget. I'm going to end with this, and this surprised you a little bit, but I thought this this morning when I was having breakfast. The good news that we never needed was that we could be reunited with God. The great news that we never heard was that he had never left us. The good news that we never needed was that we could be reunited to him. The great news that we were never told is that he had never left us. walking with us the entire way, inviting everyone and everything in life to be life and life more abundantly. That's hope. So, Father, we thank you for this hope. We thank you for the hope that's found in Christ. We thank you for the hope that is found only in you. And we thank you that we don't have the corner on that market of what hope in you looks like or who gets to get it. We ask you that we would be ambassadors of it, ministers of it, vessels of it, that we would carry it and that we would walk in it and live in it and demonstrate it, that it would be tangible and it would be defined in our life. Something that we can, that is measurable to us. And that in moments where we feel hope is being deferred, that, Father, we would return to you, which is the tree of life. That in moments where hope is being challenged or being um, in some way uh, blocked or hindered, that, Father, we would recognize that it all starts with the fact that you have always been there. Just as the father in the prodigal story said, everything I have is yours been with you always. So, Father, help us to live in that reality. And we thank you that, that there is an incredible thing that you're going to be doing. We thank you that there is an end to this. There's a, a next phase to this. There's a, there's a defined point where things are going to change. Your kingdom's going to come. We know that. But we also thank you that we don't have to, to wait for them to feel alive, to feel like we are with you, but that, Father, you're showing us that now. So we ask you for just a supernatural dose of hope 
that we would not only experience it, but in our communities, in our families, in our homes, and help us to not be irritated with those that are hopeless. Help us to not be irritated by those who are cynical and are critical, but Father, help uh, the, the hope that we walk in to be the inoculant to that, that grace upon grace upon grace would abound to those who don't see it yet, knowing that we get to invite them to know you and that you're big enough to deal with their stuff. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.blog.com.